I'd like for you to turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. We will look at more than verse 7, but I want to begin tonight at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Of course, there's a lot said there, and much can be said about that to folks like us. I said something Sunday that I'm not sure how many people either heard it right or understood it, but I thought I'm going to clarify some things tonight about the subject of God and love, because the two are in unity with each other. God is love. Your Bible says it. Love is of God. God is love. One of the major themes in Christianity is love. God highlighted love for its importance in 1 Corinthians when he said, there's faith and hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. And it's a powerful force. It covers a multitude of sins. It causes grace and mercy to flow. Love does. But love always begins with God. God is love, and anybody that loves as God describes it and defines it is of God and dwells in God, and God dwells in that person when everything is motivated by the love of God or the God kind of love, which is not exactly how man describes love today. A lot of people have different ideas about love. They get very passionate about love. I said something Sunday like this. I said that if we just go around telling sinners that God loves you, there are a lot of sinners who might think, well, I know they all don't. And I know what people mean when they talk about telling unsaved people God loves you. I know what they mean by that. They want them to be impressed with the fact that God is interested in your life, cares about your soul, and is trying to save you. But God isn't trying to save anybody. God is not in a contest with the devil on who can outmaneuver which one in order to save somebody. That's not scriptural. But a lot of people don't know that that way. They think of the love of God in human terms. You know, God is like us when it comes to love and it's all about touchy-feely feelings and squeezy and, and oozy and good. And that to love people is to be nice and to be kind and be friendly. And anybody who lived a life of kindness and friendliness and social goodness is obviously was of the love of God. But it's not always like that. That's not how you define the kind of love that God has. But what if you told a sinner, you know, that God loves you? God loves you because we hear that all the time. What if a sinner knew enough about the Bible, had been to enough meetings that he said, well, what about the verse in Romans 8.35 and 8.39? What about those two verses in the Bible? Let's look at that. Put your finger in 1 John because we are going to come back to that. What if he said, well, in Romans chapter 8, I've never met very many unsaved people that could do this. What if he was somewhat of a student in the Bible but you know from being around him and his lifestyle or her that they're not saved. They don't talk saved. They don't act saved. They don't live saved. But they're religious, and there's a lot of that. And what if you tell this religious, unregenerate, unsaved, unrepentant soul that God loves you? 
And what if they come back and said, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? If God loves me, then I'm in. Based on that one verse, you'd have to agree with them. If God loves me, then who's going to separate me from that? And he goes on to describe it, nothing can. And in verse 39, he says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful verses of scripture. They don't belong to the unsaved, they belong to the saved. They belong to folks who have been born again. This is for us, it's to encourage us. We have no right to tell a sinner that he is loved like that. Because if you do, then there's no reason for him to be born again because he's already attached to God. He, how can he be unattached? So what do you tell people? Does God love sinners? I don't want anybody to amen or anything, but let me just ask, does God love sinners? Well, you better say yes because you were one. If he didn't love sinners, we wouldn't be here tonight. Or would we say it like this? Instead of saying, does God love sinners? Because people are always saying God hates their sin but loves a sinner. I don't know where you get that, but they say that God hates the sinner's sin, but he loves the sinner. That means if he loved the sinner, he would love all forms of evil. He would love people who, who murder, people who lie, people who steal, people who are corrupt. You'd have to say he loves those kind of people. Yet you'll have a hard time proving in the Bible that that's where God's love is directed. It doesn't mean that some of us who got saved weren't once like that. Instead of saying, does God love sinners? Maybe we should say that God has demonstrated his love on the behalf of sinners in that he has provided salvation and a way to be forgiven of your sins. See, I could tell a sinner that. I could tell a sinner that. Actually, as a sinner, you're not living under his love, but you're living under his wrath. That's John 3, 36. He that believeth on the Father has eternal life. And at the end of that verse is, he that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so you would have to say to that person, instead of you complimenting yourself on being loved of God because of your good social features or your good kind habits and nice ways, maybe you should consider that because you don't believe that the wrath of God abides on you, dwells on you. And because of that, you need to be saved. And the good news, this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The good news is that God has provided salvation for the likes of you. Now, whether you get saved or not, I don't know. That's between you and God. God has settled the sin question and has done all that needs to be done for man to be saved. But whether or not you actually experience salvation depends on how you respond to God. God's done what he's going to do. And if I might add to that, he is active now. His eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth. There are those whom the Bible calls elect, whose time is about to come, to come into the kingdom, and God's going to save them. And he can do that. See, God being God is sovereign. And being sovereign means he is absolute ruler over all of his creation. You'd have to agree with that. 
Because if he's not ruler over all of his creation, then he's not sovereign. But he created the world. He put everybody and everything in it, everything that's above it, everything that is below it. He made it the way it is. He made it the way he wanted it. And he put us here because that's the way he wanted it. And he's in charge of it. And he can do with his creation whatever pleases him. There are multitudes of people in the church who don't like the idea that God is an absolute sovereign. They would rather think that God made things and then in some static way, he steps back and makes announcements. This is where you ought to live. So whatever. But then you read in Ephesians 1 where when God created the world, those whom he foreknew, those are the ones he predestined to save. We don't like the idea that he would do that. But can he not do that? Who can say, as Paul wrote in Romans 9, who are we to reply to God and say anything he does, any way he does it, is not fair? We have no right to interfere or to oppose him in any way, shape, or form, especially when it comes to his love. God is not obligated to love anybody. He's not obligated to display his love to anybody. He doesn't have to. There are no rules in heaven. If there were rules, then God would be under one, and then he would no longer be sovereign. But if God said this is the way, and this is the way it's going to be, and this is the way it's going to end, and this is the way it started, he knows the end from the beginning and is in charge of everything in between, even the hairs of your head and the leaves that fall to the ground, the snowflakes, the grains of salt, the whole thing. If he is omniscient and knows all things, if he is omnipotent and has all power to do whatever needs to be done to direct his affairs and cause his decrees to come to pass, then he is sovereign. Now, it's a humbling thing for man on this earth to realize that God is in total and complete control of everything, that he directs the affairs of this earth as it pleases him. That's the way he does because he is God. We often treat God like some guy next door or some nice fellow down the street who thinks like we do and acts like we do. In fact, God challenges people once. He said, you thought I was altogether like you because I don't do things the way you want and you're complaining about the way God does things. He that sitteth in the heavens has absolute control over all creation. Now, when it comes to love, the God kind of love, this word that we have a lot of feelings about. Let's see if we can define it, the words love. In the New Testament, there are actually two words. One word is P-H-I-L-E-O. We call it phileo. And it's a common word used quite a bit in the New Testament. In fact, while your finger is in 1 John 4, would you turn to 1 Corinthians 16 and look towards the end of that chapter in verse 22. Another verse that a lot of people use a lot. Phileo is a word which has to do with your feelings. It's liking things. I love my old dog. I love my wife's spaghetti. Oh, I love to hear that song sung. It's the kind of thing you derive pleasure from. It's kind of like sports fans. You know, you got one dressed in green and one dressed in blue, and they kind of get after each other, but when you're dressed in the same color, rooting for the same team, oh boy, you sit over here with us. 
You don't mean that in life like that, but it's a kind of a way of describing what phileo is. It's often described in the word as a kiss. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, you wouldn't kiss your enemies, but you would kiss your friends. I'm not big on that kissing part, but I remember years ago, a bearded man kissed me on the cheek. I had never met him before, and I met him. He hit me right there with a big old bushy kiss. It's scriptural. You can't deny it. We'd never had that in the bulletin in the church to do that, so we never did, and I wasn't used to it. And it was kind of a strange sensation to have a, uh, have a man kiss me. I, I'm not into that. You know, I don't have much for that. But anyway, this word phileo is used here in a very important place, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. In that verse, he says, if any man love not the Lord, what is the verdict? Anathema. Let him be cursed. Now, the word there is phileo. You see, it would be like this. If you don't enjoy the Lord, if you don't look forward to fellowship with him, hearing his word or singing his songs, if you don't derive some kind of pleasure, I just enjoy the Lord, then he says you not only are none of his, but it's anathema. If we can't enjoy the Lord, then we're only enduring him when we come together and as we say we're his. But we don't like what we hear. We don't like to sing. We don't like that long sermon. We don't hear too much about him. We don't want to sing too much about him. We'd rather hear stories of something, but we just don't want to have it crammed down our throat. You know why? Because a lot of people don't love the Lord like that. They're just not comfortable in the presence of the Lord. They don't like to hear about him. They don't like the fellowship with him. Don't like the moments of being still and quiet and contemplation and and meditation and, and thought about God. They don't like to deal with things in their life that have been described by the word. They just, it's just something I'm not comfortable with all of that. Well, then there's a problem, a serious problem, according to 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22. But the other word, our main word is A G A. P-E, agape, agapeo, various ways that word is spelled. The dictionaries are full of really heady descriptions about agape. I would personally describe it in my humble opinion. I would call it God-directed love. It's a love that comes from God and is directed by God. You find it in people who know the Lord. Their life is a life given under the Lord to serve him. And their desire is to serve him on his terms, not mine, but his. You surrender yourself unto God and you desire to live your life as the book says you should live your life. If the Bible said this is the way walking in it, your love for God is a compelling thing within you to make that decision, to make that choice and to do it God's way. Love of God is a sincere and honest love and expression. It's the kind of love that when it is displayed, it does not seek a reciprocal. In other words, God does not love because you're going to love him back. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you think the world loves God? Actually, he's talking about God has displayed his love to the world and what he has done so that people in the world can be saved and people in the world could care less about that. They don't love him, but that didn't keep God from loving. Are you with me? 
Man's rejection of God doesn't keep him from loving. We can love our enemies, not because they're going to love us back or do good to us. We love them because God directs it like that. We do that because that's the way God wants us to live as his representatives in this world. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to love the way he loves. As I have loved you, so love others, he said. As the Father has sent me, I send you. As God has loved me, I have loved you, so go love other people. In other words, let God use you on his terms however he wants to. Avoid all these things that are contentious, argumentative, everything that throws us into conflict and separation. None of it ever is of God. Unless it's, of course, you're hearing error and you've got to get out of it. But even in the church, since I've been a Christian, I've been a Christian for quite a while. I have known times and days and earlier years which contention and arguments and side choosing and name calling was common. Oh, we had faith. Oh, man. Oh, no. We're getting the bills paid. I'm trusting God. I'm believing God. I'm walking it out. But they couldn't get along with anybody. Don't you think there's something wrong? Don't you think there'd be something wrong with that? about what people call love. They don't know what it was. There was a time years ago we didn't teach on love. was a, kind of afraid to mention love because that was a sort of a soft message. And boy, we got all the face stuff down pat, but we absolutely were difficult people to live with. Just difficult people. A lot of them were. I've met a few, and I'm sure that I have myself been that way. Go back to 1 John 4. I told you we would be there again. Listen to how agape is in the scriptures. Again, verse 7, love is of God and everyone that loves, that is, has God directed love in their life, sincere, without recompense, and so forth. I'll give you another word in just a minute. Is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Now herein is love. Not that we love God, but what? But that he loved us. We didn't love God when Jesus died on the cross. We didn't ask him to come and do that. We didn't care about that. We were wrapped up in ourselves, doing our own thing, looking for some religious routine to follow in hopes that that would save us. And then Jesus comes along and did what he did, and God says, now that is what love is. You know why? Because love has one big word. It's commitment. How could you define love in any dimension without using the word commitment? Now, I shared this earlier in the year, but let me say it again. How could a marriage ever be a good marriage? How could it ever be a marriage at all if there wasn't commitment? I mean, before you ever decide to marry, there's got to be a decision made in two people's lives. You're the end of my road, and you're the end of my road. There's nobody else for me. I'm going to love you the rest of my life. I know you're going to look different next year. I know we're going to change and all that. But no matter what happens or where we go, I'm going to love you. In other words, I'm going to commit myself to you, and I desire that God, through me, would love you the way you should be loved, and that I will be loved the way I should be loved. 
It's a commitment. He doesn't love her because she performs well in the house and the kitchen. That's not why he loves her. And then if she doesn't do well, well, I don't love you. That's not the way God does it. Again, you look at us. We were very unlovely people when God loved us. We were very hateful and loathsome people when the plan of salvation was brought about at the cross. The Bible says we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. He got what he deserved. He told everybody he was the Messiah or something. Well, look at him now hanging on a cross. Big Messiah. (laughs) What about that? We didn't know what was going on. We paid a little attention to it. Everywhere they went, they proclaimed one thing, the gospel. They didn't say God loves you all. They went out and said, here's what a loving God has done for you. This is what he's done. And God would use that message to convict people of their sins. And many of them surrendered because of that God-sent conviction while many of them walked away. But God is the one who does all of this. When I use that word commitment to describe love, I'm saying this. Jesus committed himself to his father. He said, the father has sent me. You know what his mission in the world was? Twofold. One, to save sinners and to destroy the works of the devil. First John 3. Those are two things that he came to do. Only way he could do it was the way he did it. All that he did was God's way of showing this is how much I love you because what he's doing for you, none of you can do for yourself. And if he doesn't do this, I'm going to have to judge all of my creation. i have to judge all of you. There's none worthy of salvation on your own. All we like sheep have gone astray. We are all as an unclean thing. And Isaiah 64 says, we are all unrighteous, like filthy rags, a very graphic, ugly word in the Bible. But that's how God sees lost man trying to be saved. All your righteousness all your good efforts and all the good things you do at trying to be somebody, everything you're trying to do to impress me or to improve yourself is like a filthy rag. And people in the Hebrew would say, oh man, don't talk like that. But that's the way God was showing us how futile our efforts were at being what he wants. We can't. And finally, everybody saw, even through the sacrificial system, this is not working. Every year we have to go through this over and over and over. We're a bunch of sinners. We don't even know who he is. We just know his ways. We just know about his routines and sacrifices and priests and and holy days and going to Jerusalem. We don't know him. God said, the time has come. Jesus, I want you to go and live a perfect life so that I can put their penalty on you and you bear it away. And he said, I'll do it. And the thing that drove Jesus while he was on this earth to live that perfect life that he lived was pleasing his father. Are you with me? I have come to do thy will. And when he got through, what did he say? It is what? It's finished, didn't he, on the cross? It is finished. What was finished? God had made full and complete provision for man's sin. 
And that life of three and a half years, that direction that God gave, that commitment, that full commitment that he made is what God calls love. And in turning it around, if you say you're a Christian, love, the same kind of love requires commitment from you to him. You put nothing before him. What do you say? If you love anybody or anything more than me, in Matthew 10, 37, he said, if you love even your mother and father more than me, you're not worthy of me. So you've got to challenge yourself. Look at all the things we put before God. We'll miss church. We'll do a lot of things for other reasons. Because there's not this high-level, God-ordered commitment to serving him first. Your Bible said, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And he that loves dwells in God, and God dwells in him. Love is the one thing that makes us God-like. But the love that makes us God-like is a love that has to come from God. And his whole purpose is commitment to God to serve him on his terms. I've got to hear what he has to say. I've got to be willing to do what he's given me to do. Look at verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And verse 19 says, we love him because we are pretty good people. You know why we love him tonight? If we do, if we do. See, I can't say that I know all of us do. I don't. I can only tell you what the gospel says. You have to measure yourself by it. Are you here? We love him. If we do love at all, if we're loving, divinely centered, loving people, we are because God chose us and called us to do that, and we have surrendered. We love him because, because he first loved us. So, what do we tell sinners? Do we tell sinners that they're loved or they're under wrath? If you tell a heathen man, God loves you, thank you very much. I like it. That's why I came here. Or if you say to a sinner, you know, you've got a lot of good features in your life. You're a nice guy. Everybody likes you, but you're not a Christian. And because you're not a Christian, the wrath of God abides on you. And he said, thank you. I didn't know I was that bad. I'm damaged goods. Praise the Lord. Well, you know what he says? He grits his teeth. You just told him an eternal, unchangeable truth. And he's angry because of the nature of his heart. Why wouldn't he be angry? That's what the devil makes out of people that he owns. That's what the devil does to people. That's the way he works inside of people that are lost, to offend you over the gospel. But shouldn't we tell a lost man the sentence of death is over you because you're under the wrath of God, and you're under the wrath of God because you're not a believer? Oh, I believe God. Of course you do. So does the devil. The devil believes, like you just said, that is the devil mentally this is what most people call believe. I believe God. You mentally agree with the statements of Scripture that what it said is true, but you do not believe it enough to order your life by it or to commit yourself to it. Your believing is simply mental. 
It's like you put yourself in mental agreement with what the Bible says, but you're unwilling to live like that is eternally true. And anybody can say, oh, I believe God. It's just like saying, oh, I have lots of faith. My problem is not faith. Oh, I've got a lot of faith. And then they say, I go to church all the time, which means you have faith. I wish. So you have this question, what do we say to sinners? What do we say? Well, here's what we do. If you have your Bible, follow me through this. This will be good for you. You'll appreciate this when your grandchildren are sitting on your lap. Most of you never make it to grandparents because the Lord is coming. And this happens to be an hour that God is dealing with his people. Right now, while I'm talking, judgment will begin at the church of God. But before it happens, you're going to be given a chance to get your heart and everything right so that you don't have to be judged. But God's love for you compels him when he chose you, when he called you out of darkness and made you his, and you want to get away and do other things, you can be sure that because God loves you, he will chasten you. That's Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12. God chastens everybody he receives. He does what he has to do to keep you from falling away because if he doesn't chasten you and he leaves you alone, he must judge you. Are you with me? If nothing ever changes in our life and we continue as we have been and we're resisting, then you must be judged. But whom God loves, he chastens. He corrects. He doesn't give you freedom to be like anybody else or think like the world. He keeps you from sleeping or keep you from having a good time. He just deals with you until you make that decision to commit all of you to God on his terms. Here's what you tell them. Titus 3. Here's where you start. Titus 3. And before you start here, realize what this means now. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. For we ourselves were also sometimes foolish, weren't we? Disobedient, deceived, serving different kind of lust, whether it's food or and today, drugs or sex or eating or buying or being famous, we lust after the things. That's what he says. Now, he's telling us like we were. We ourselves also were sometimes foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving diverse kinds of lust and pleasures, living in hatred and envy, and we were hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, this is what happened. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. You know how we got saved if we are? We got this way because God did something. And there was nothing that I could do. I'm lost in my sins. I can't even cry out to the Lord unless it's for salvation. But he said, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, he has saved us. Now that is what you tell a sinner. God has been kind to all sinners. He causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And the sinner who lives beside the saint, he gets rain on his yard too. 
He's blessed. God has been kind to the lost. A whole lot of times a community is blessed because the saints are in it and those around the saints benefit from the blessing that comes to saints. But just because God is kind to somebody doesn't mean that he loves and secures or commits himself to sinful people. God is not committed to sinful people as they continue to live their sinful lives. It doesn't work like that. Now, God is loving. Look at you. How many of you have been born again? You know, there was a time in your life you didn't deserve it, and God invaded your life with thoughts that the Holy Spirit began to mess with your thinking, and you begin to see yourself as God sees you, and you begin to think thoughts about yourself that were ooh, fearful, because the end of your road, my friend, is death. You continue down the path you're going, you're going to die. Jude talks about saving some with fear. That's in the little book of Jude, and save some with fear. Because you tell them, this is where you are going with your life. You have no hookup with God. There is no relationship with you and the Lord. You go to church, you hear about him, you're trying to get satisfied with that being good enough, but it's not. You're lost. The wrath of God, John 3, 36, is abiding on you. It's a dwelling place. It is abiding on you. You're under the sentence of death. We all were. But God, who is rich in mercy, wherewith the great love by which he has loved us, has got our attention, brought us to a place of conviction. You've been convicted. And once you were convicted, you began to see yourself in a way you've never seen yourself before. And you realize that you're not a Christian. You have no right to God at all. You can go to church, but you don't know him. And a loving God offers you, only he can. He offers you repentance. It only comes from God. You can't repent when you want to. God has to give it. And when he gives it, you can partake of it, or you can turn away from it. You can frustrate the grace of God. You can treat with contempt the goodness of God. People do all the time. Many will be called. Many will be called, but few will be chosen. But bear this out. It is the love of God which spoke to you kindly when you were a sinner. He did not yell and scream at you, I'm going to send you to hell and you're going to die and ha, ha, ha. He simply says, the love that God has is directed to the lost. I want to save you. Here's how I want you to know. I have made it possible for you to be saved. And I want you to be saved. Romans 3, Romans 6, and Romans 5. Let's go to the Roman road. We're marching to Rome. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Remember, years ago, we memorized these verses. We read them every week. We talked back and forth every week. We practiced saving each other. You ever done that play acting? One of us would be a sinner and the other one would be trying to get us saved. We had a lot of laughs over that, but we had to learn how to quote the Bible. There's always 
one of us had acted so unsafe, I don't know if anybody could save him. But we laughed and had a lot of fun with it. Because we had to know the scriptures. But anyway, we used to use the scripture. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and what? That's what you tell a sinner. It's not that God loves you. You say, look, you're a sinner. You've come short of the glory of God. You're not what God wants. You're not there. You're in wrathland. Chapter 6 and verse 23. Secondly, not only have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but the wages of sin is what? Death. Not life, but death. But the gift of God, which came from his love for lost man, is eternal life. And then go to chapter 5. Go back one chapter. And look at verse 8. And God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what did Jesus do? Now that, again, that is what God shows us is love. That somebody, knowing you were lost and could not escape the sentence of death, that God to change all of that for you, would send his own son to take your place at the cross so that by appeasing God and the penalty of sin and putting sin to death, God could now, through Christ, save his people. And he could do that. He did that because of Jesus. Now, who else would have ever done that for us? Nobody else could. Nobody else could have done what Jesus did because all men are sinners. A sinner can't save a sinner. Years ago, they used to talk about Jesus was a sinner on the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, he became a sinner. And all the ugly things that you did, he was. That was a terrible thing to say. They call it Jesus dying spiritually. Well, one of the churches in America still has that as one of their main themes and doctrines. Jesus went to the cross as a sin offering. He was God's offering. He was the Lamb of God, who from the foundation of the world was slain. That is, there came a time that the Lamb of God, God's offering for man's sin, would take man's place, die in man's place. What's the last words he said? Father, into thy hands I commit what? My spirit. There wasn't any time that he wasn't God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled his commitment to God. And now he's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. You know why? Because he loves you. He loves his people. Somebody has to do that. We are weak. One of the things the Sermon on the Mount says that we are poor in spirit. We need something more than we have every day. Go to John 15, the big John. John chapter 15, and look at verse 13. This is a wonderful verse of Scripture. They're all wonderful. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, what do you mean? Well, verse 13, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends... You are my friends 
if you do what I have commanded you. They said, a greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friend if you lay down your life for me. Before you commit your love, each other, and all that stuff, he said, your first love is to God, first. There's no greater love than for a man to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, you're my friends if, if you do what I tell you. Look at John 14, right before this, verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that what? Loves me. Let me ask you all a question. Easy question, just based on the little bit that we've said. How do you know if somebody loves the Lord? In what way do we demonstrate our love for God? If you feed the poor and help the hungry, you've done the least of these, you've done it to the Lord. That's love for God, of course. That would involve our commitment to the needy people in the world. We try to help people in some of these missionary journeys. We can't go there, and they need help more than one week a year, but we do what we can. But he said here, if you have my commandments, what does keepeth mean? Does that mean faith? Do it. He that hath my commandments and do it or keeps them, he's the one who loves me. How do we show the Lord that we love him? By being faithful. Isn't that right? This is one particular truth in the Bible that every Christian needs to master. This is one message every preacher needs to have. This is where it all starts. God loved sinful man in sending Christ to this earth to take his place in death so that through that death, he can now offer salvation to the lost. And that way, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God showed his love for lost men in the world by what he did with Jesus Christ. All of us are sinners. We've all gone astray. The sentence of death is lodged in all of us because the wages of sin is death. But God commended his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says, now, now that you say you're saved, now that you've had a spiritual experience, here's how it works. If any man has my commandments and keeps them, he loves me. Look at what Judas said in the next verse. Judas asked him a question in verse 22. Judas saith unto him, not his carrot, but the other Judas, and he said, how is it that you will manifest yourself unto us and not unto the world? I would encourage you to think about what Judas said. In verse 21, he said, man loves me, he will keep my word, and he that loves me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And Judas said, how is it then that you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Can I say this because he loves you? Will you allow me to say that? I'm talking about divine life changing love. The kind of love that commits himself to your eternal well-being so that he will not let you escape his hand. 
Not only will he engrave you in the palm of his hand, but he said, no man's going to pluck you out of my hand because I called you, I saved you, I'm going to make you one of mine in heaven. Now, you don't know that fully. You're acting like it's true because we've got to make our calling and election sure. That's how we do it from our side. But God has made a plan. He set it in motion. And he says, who am I saved? I'm going to keep. Now, if I'm a Baptist on that one point, that's the only little piece of me that would have Baptist leanings. I agree with that. Now, listen to me. This is where we end our fellowship with Baptists. How do I know that you've been saved? Because of the way you live with relationship to this word. If you do not live according to the word, you're not saved. If you say you're saved, but you don't even have an interest in the word, it's anathema. You say, man, that's tight, isn't it? Yes, it is tight. The way is narrow. And we're almost afraid to say that because we're afraid people won't come back. But the good thing about us is nobody made you come here and nobody made me come here. We're here. And all we have to do is hear what he says in his word and what the truth is. But Judas said, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Because that's the way it works. Look at verse 23. Here's how that manifest thing works. Jesus answered and said to them, if a man love me, he will keep my words. You're going to live that way. And my father will love him. You're going to experience something you haven't experienced before because God is going to do this. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Do you suppose a man's life would change if God took up residence in your life and became a force in your life? Do you think that would change your life? Of course. Of course. But here's the way it works. You want to have a relationship with the Lord? You want to experience the love of God in your life? Then take him at his word and live like what he said is true and order your life by it. Quit wishing he wouldn't talk about that. Quit dreading hearing that next verse that's coming up. Quit, I'm going to have to give up something. Quit thinking about what it's going to cost me or what will people think about me. We're talking about heaven and hell. And when God saves his people, he's going to keep them saved. I know some have drifted away, but you know what? He brought them back. You know why he brought them back? Because he loves them. That's exactly right. 2 John 6. Go all the way back in the back. Little John. 2 John 6. Think about this. He said, and this is love. There's a clear definition of love. And this is love that we walk after his commandments. Does it say that? If that's not enough, let's try one more. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome or grievous. Now there's four verses of scripture we have read tonight saying the same thing. They all say this, so you can measure yourself by this word. You can look at your life tonight and make a determination about where you're fitting in this whole scheme of things. If a man loves the Lord, he keeps his word. We honor his word. We preach his word. We may struggle with it. Like Jesus said, 
some of the things in the word is weighty. It's not easily grasped and easily understood and you can go on. Some things kind of drop on you because they're heavy. It's kind of like a burden. Ah, you don't know what to do with it. But it's a signal from God to sit down and think about what you've heard. All those times you say, well, I just can't get over this. I can't stop that. I can't. I just can't seem. I'm just not. I'm just can't. You're forgetting one thing. There's no greater power than the power of God. And God is here to put you over, to make it possible for you to overcome anything. He's making it possible because he loves you, period. If he didn't love you, it wouldn't matter where we were tonight. It wouldn't matter at all. If you have no interest in his word, God says it's because you have no interest in me. You might be a nice person, but you have no interest in me. God wants us to know that he not only loves us, but that his plan for us is to complete the work that he started. Doesn't the Bible say something about that? He who, see, we have to sing it to get it. He who began a good work in you will what? Will complete it. In whom? Trust me with this. It's obvious that churches are filled with people when nothing's going on. I'm not saying here, I'm just saying there's a lot of folks who gather around to hear the word of the Lord, but who do not do it. It's just like wheat and tares. They grow together. They're not being plucked up right now. They're not being singled out. They're just growing together. Jesus said, leave it like that. Remember that? It's just leave them alone. Let them grow together until the harvest, the time of the harvest, and then the reapers will come, and it'll be very evident in the last days who loves God and who doesn't. Those who pay the price and those who wouldn't. Let's not treat the love of God as something superficial or something that's meaningless or something that just comes and goes, yeah, yeah, God loves everybody. Let's don't do that. We don't want to do it that way. Let me say in closing two or three things about God's love. God's love is unconditioned and unqualified. God's love is motivated by nothing on whom the objects of his love are bestowed. In other words, God does not love us because he sees in us some good quality or some good trait. God does not look around there and say, oh, here's a sister. Ooh, wow, this, I want this one in my church. How many of you know that God knew who she was before she ever got here? When the Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world, God's bypassing a lot of people. That man at the gate called beautiful. How many times did the apostles, you know, the man that got healed in Acts 3, how many times did Jesus walk past him? Never said a word to him. One day, it was the right time. Peter and John said, Silver, go have thy number. Says, I have given unto thee. Was that an act of love? Sure was, directed by the Lord. Got him persecuted. It was worth it. That man got well, figured it was worth it. All these times that God sends a hard word into our life or a weighty matter, and you're thinking, I don't know about that. I don't want to go back anymore Wednesday night. You know what the purpose of that word was? To fix something. To bring something forth. It's like it was planted in there in the womb of your heart, and God wants it to just be birthed so that you can be that kind of person he has decreed that you're going to be. 
God didn't put any of us in the wrong place. We're not here by mistake. We haven't just stumbled into this concrete building thinking, where am I? All those times you did not want to come back and you came back, that's one of the ways that God works on us. And those times you got caught telling a lie or you got caught doing something or you got caught in a something, you know, that's the way God works. He can let you go, leave you alone, let you have your beer and your refreshments and watch your trash and listen to that. Just keep doing it. He's not going to stop you. The worst thing that can happen is like in 2 Thessalonians 2, when God gives people over to their vile passions. That's it. That's it. They're not going to be bothered ever again by their sins. They get uglier and uglier, meaner and meaner, ruder and ruder. He said, fill up your cup for the day of wrath. And when the day of wrath comes, it comes with vengeance. And there's multitudes of people right now in some place that you don't want to know about are in anguish because the little life you lived in this world, you loved yourself, you loved your ways, you loved your habits, you loved your money, you loved your accomplishments, you loved praise and pride, and you loved the claps and the applause. Or you love being tough and rude. You loved all that stuff and one day you died like that. And you know the day is coming when you're getting out of that bad place. You're going to stand before God. No pain at that time yet. And then that last final judgment and sentence is announced. And doors open that will never be shut. I don't know if it's just outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, or a flaming fiery hell. It's just going to be a bad place. It doesn't have to be like that. Folks, what God did at the cross, he did because he loved to see man have an ability and a chance to get saved. He made it possible for me to be saved. Not on June 30th, 1968, but at the cross. That's where he made it possible. I just happened to be 28 years old back in the last century, <laughs> in the 60s, and God saved me. I don't know why I did. One weekend we had all of this lay witness stuff going on and people talking about Jesus and they weren't preachers. And I thought, how can this be? And my heart was troubled. And a man named Gary Overly from Kansas came up front one night in our church to give his witness, whatever that I learned later is called, I meant testimony. And while he stood there, he asked me if I'd pray for him. Out loud. You know, a regular roll your own prayer in front of everybody. I wasn't going to stand up and say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be. I could do that. I wasn't going to say, Thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. Thank you for the birds that sing. Thank you, God, for everything. I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to do my dad's little thing. Bless us, Lord, these gifts, bless us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. That was his prayer at the table. I had to stand up and say, uh, and stutter to Buddha, Heavenly Father. Everybody's waiting on me to get finished. I'm trying to get a word out. I sat down that night while he was testifying. I've never been so convicted of my sins in my whole life. Or I realized I got located that one night. 
I wasn't expecting it, but I did. It can happen to anybody anywhere. But it was on that night that God allowed me to see just how bad I was, and I was offered that next morning a plan of salvation. Somebody said, if you're willing to take the first step, God will be with you all the rest of your steps. That was 42 years ago, and he's been there. What a journey this has been. And I look back at all the good ways that I've been blessed and all the good things that's worked for me and my wife and my family, all the good things that have come to pass. You know why? Let me tell you why. Because a long time ago, the emphasis in my life was the Word of God. Every message I heard, and I had to hear it on tape, Every message I heard was about the Word of God. The Word, the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. Having never heard the Word, we just couldn't get enough of it. Couldn't get enough of it. Now here I stand all these years later, and I can testify the fact that God has performed His Word, has made me the head and not the tail, above and not beneath, blessed going out, blessed coming in. Everything I put my hand to for 40-some years has worked. And it's not because of any inherent goodness, but because of what he said in this word that he allowed me to understand. I got persecuted. I got rejected. I'm sure I disappointed my parents on occasion because I was being talked about their son. I'm sure that all the ways that God was leading me then was, you know, people couldn't understand me, but I was happy. It all became because God opened our eyes to see the truth. I think somewhere in my life I prayed. I don't remember when, or, but I'm just assuming that somewhere in my life I prayed, God, let me preach the word without compromise to anybody. Help me to court no man's favor, pat nobody on the back at the expense of truth. Because this word, if we know this word, a loving God through this word will make us free. He will. God is love. His love has no reason to exist. His love is for you. There's no reason for God to be loving. He always was love, wasn't he? Was there ever a time that God wouldn't love? God is love. And you look at us, folks. What value was there in any of us? What about anybody in this room compelled God to love us? Not a single thing. But when he showed us his love, he put a value on us because now we are the object of his affections. Did he not say that he watches over us? You better say amen. Did he not say he cares for us? When he prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, I pray for those thou hast given me. I pray not for the world. In John 17, you can read it when you go home. I said, Lord, I pray for those you've given me. That would be me. I'm one of them. Isn't it good to know that God is praying for me? <laughs> he said, I pray for those thou hast given me. I pray not for the world. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. God fixes his love on us and puts value on us. We have meaning now to God. We have purpose. 
Man loves things because of what pleasure he gets from. He's a phileo man. But God makes us agape people, loving people. Not loving in the sense that we're just gooey and squeezy, but loving in the sense that we're willing to do what God wants us to do, whether people like it or not. We're not trying to disappoint people or anger people. We're just trying to please God. In pleasing God, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know this. It's not you they hate, it's me they hate. Because the life you're living is directed by him. That's what they hate. All my old buddies when I was teaching school, they didn't mind me out carrying on and drinking and going to parties and talking ugly. But when I got saved that summer and I came back to school, everything had changed. They didn't like me anymore. Oh, they were friendly acting towards me, but I heard some of the comments that they made. That's just the way it is. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at verse 6. Tell me how this works. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto him. Now, could they have been anything at all if he hadn't have? He said, you alone of all the nations in the world have I chosen. You're the only ones. Now, verse 7, the Lord did not set his love in his choice. He didn't set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep an oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Same thing is true with us individually. It was predetermined before there was a world that one day there would be you in the world and that God on some certain time in the world was going to save you. Now, you couldn't save yourself. You couldn't improve yourself. God saved you. He could save anybody he wants to because he's omnipotent. And if he's omnipotent, he can do anything. He can save everybody if he wants to. He could snap his fingers and everybody would cry because of their sins. Why doesn't he? I don't know, but he saved you. He made you cry. He put you on your face. Why? Because he chose you to be his. And in this way, he's going to save you. Jesus paid the price. He paid the price and said, now, because of what he did, I'm willing to come into your life and know you and you can know me and we can have fellowship. And we don't say, Lord, why don't you save everybody? He said, Jacob, I love Esau, I hated before they were born. How can that be? Because he is God. See, predestination works like this, or salvation. All men are lost. The only ones who get saved are the ones that God convicts and brings to himself. They're called elect. Those whom God has chosen from the foundation of the world to be his people. All the others... If he bypasses them with this message of salvation, they don't die because God bypassed them. They die because of their sins. You would have too. We would have all died in our sins. The reason we don't is because God did something for us. That's love. And I tell you what, I have not yet challenged God. Well, it's not right for you to save me and not save everybody else. Whoa, 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 whoa. Remember the potter and the clay? Romans 9. He makes the big thing of clay, and then he shapes a vessel into honor into one, paints it, puts it in the oven, makes it a beautiful vase, sets it at a centerpiece, and then out of another same lump of clay, 
he makes baseball so he can throw them at the chickens out in the yard. Is that fair? Does God have to make all vases? Can he make a vase if he wants to? Can he make spitballs out of clay if he wants to? Can he make a spit tune and spit in it or worse if he wants to? Is it right? How could he do anything wrong? I'm telling you what, when you begin to know something about who he is and who we're not, you sometimes want to put your hand over your mouth and sit back and say, like Job did, you know, I've heard of you. I've heard of you and talked about you, but now I see you and I, all I can do is just humble myself in dust and ashes and I'm sorry I ever spoke because I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe that's what it means to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and let God be God. Just trust him day by day that he will bring you through, that he'll bless you, that he'll keep you because he said that he would. Blessed be the Lord. In one more verse, chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, verse 14. Behold, the heavens and the heaven of heavens is the Lord thy God. The earth also, with all that is therein, is he sovereign? And he says so there. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples as it is today. How did the Israelites become the apple of his eye? The choice he made. But he said his choice was how he loved them. I singled you out above all the peoples. You were a nation in a nation, the least of all nations. You were a bunch of slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out as a nation. You didn't know anything. You're just dumb slaves. And I chose you because I loved you. And because he says to your children, your children to your seed, because I chose your fathers and I made a covenant with them, I'm extending that covenant to you, to my children too. Because this is how God has chosen in his word to love us. The Lord hath appeared of old to me, saying, Jeremiah said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Now, there may be some of you here tonight that have never been born again. You've never been taken with the love of God, how much you are loved and don't deserve it. And if you come out of that, it's because of this. God has shown you his loving kindness and he draws you to him. He could leave you there laughing, looking at your watch, when's this service going to be over? Or he can just convict you really good. Or he may just leave you home with your tears for a couple of days. I've done that before. I want to get saved. I say, why? I don't know. Well, go home, find out. I can't offer salvation to anybody in here. That's God's. How many of you know the salvation is of God? I don't know who wants it and who doesn't. I don't know when they cry. I don't know who wants it. I just say, here's the message. Here is the message. God saves. He saves like this. If he convicts you of your sins, ask him to forgive you of your sins. We'll all know if you did. We'll all know if you did because of the way you're going to live. You're not the same person anymore. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who? Shall tribulation? Shall famine? Peril? Shall anything be able to separate us from the love of God? 
me tell you something. There's no greater force in your life right now, tonight, than God's love for you and to you. For when he gets it, the Bible says nothing can separate you from that love because he has committed himself to your salvation and he will see it through because he that started will finish. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would bless everybody in this church, even the ones that aren't here, with that deeper truth of your love for them. And if there are any here that have never been born again, I pray that you will grant them repentance and that they can be saved. And that they will publish their salvation, make it known and not hide it. For all the rest of us, may there be a a dimension of thanksgiving resting upon us and within us. Something that just pauses from all the busyness of our days and takes time to say, thank you, Father. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for opening my eyes to see the truth. Thank you for helping me through this time in my life. Thank you for sparing me from that wreck and that accident. Thank you for sparing me from that disease. Thank you for saving my child. Thank you for blessing my wife. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For you have done for us what you don't do for everybody. We are thankful tonight in this church that for all these years you've kept us here. We have had our struggles. We've had our weaknesses and our weak moments. But you have been kind to us. You've been gracious to us here. We believe that you will continue to do that for we ask that you would cause our eyes to settle upon this truth and never look away from it. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.